We're gonna play a little rock and roll right now. Just let me hear some of that rock and roll. Rock and roll. Rock and roll music. Rock and roll. 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 Rock and roll is king. All right. Welcome to the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast, which is now available in both regular and gluten free. Oh, yes, I'm Don DiMuccio. And later on in the show, we're going to talk to a guitarist who's been called the Zelig of rock and roll, playing on thousands of sessions with everyone from Art Godfunkel to the Sex Pistols, direct via satellite from the UK, Chris Spedding. But first, a returning champion racking up thousands in cash and prizes. Yes. A man who's no stranger to playing on sessions himself and a good friend to the show. Welcome back to the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast, Mr. Eric Fontana. <laughs> Thank you, thank you. The kids love them. Thank you, thank you. That's fantastic about Chris Spedding. Kudos and hats off to you. Um, just one of the greatest figures in, in guitar land. So so that's great for you, and I'm looking forward to hearing the interview. My God, I mean, I, I knew he was on a lot of sessions. I didn't know he was on every single album that I own. Right, that's great. Very it, good. It, it's fantastic, yeah. So how cool, are you doing? Right. I'm doing good, doing good. Hanging in there, you know... Uh, Phase three is here uh, for all, all of you people in the future listening to this a thousand years from now, the COVID uh, phase three reopening. So, um, yeah, I just got pretty a little, much hanging in there. I just got a little good news myself. Um, oh, good. I guess uh, the guidelines have changed for Massachusetts. So one of our canceled gigs uh, got rescheduled. Awesome. That's well, great. August. So it's, it's starting to happen. Yeah. Fortunately, you. you know, down south, they got the memo a little late. Well, yeah, but this is not a political show. This is a music show. The hell it's not. Oh, yeah. I guess it is. <laughs> I'm w- wink, wink, nod, nod. Well, you know, a lot of things have changed and a little bit of music news. I noticed that the uh, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is moving the induction ceremony to just an HBO special. Oh, is that right? Yeah. That's a wise move, wise move. They've called off any in-person gatherings in Cleveland. Yep. And I guess this year it's the Doobie Brothers, T-Rex, Depeche Mode, Nine Inch Nails, and for reasons I still don't understand, Whitney Houston. Yeah. I don't um, get that. I, that's I, a separate Hall of Fame. That's like having a classical musician in the Jazz Hall of Fame. You exactly. Know, she should be in the Pop Music Hall of Fame. Sure. She would deserve, you know. R&B uh, all day long. Um, yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah. But this time, like they, when they stuck in like, Run DMC, I don't, I, I don't understand. I, no, because it's not, uh, you know, I agree. And I love Run DMC, but that's a separate Hall of Fame. It's a separate um, Hall of Fame, exactly. It's like putting a basketball player or a football player into the soccer or baseball Hall of Fame. They, two different sports. Exactly right, yeah. So And, um, well, you know, we've, we've gone over this before in, a, in another podcast, but what do you think about some of the people who've been snubbed? Like, throw some names out. King Crimson. Yeah. yeah. King Crimson. I mean... I know it's not everyone's, um, you know, they're not, they, they, they weren't a quote-unquote commercial success, but right. that court of the Crimson King album is phenomenal. I think the whole thing is bought and paid for. I think it's a show. I think that it's just like the Hollywood Walk of Fame. A lot of people don't realize that you have to actually purchase the star and the Walk of Fame, and I think this is the same thing. And I think that Paul Stanley uh, of KISS said it eloquently. John Bon Jovi alluded to it. You know, um, it's it's run by you know it's like it's run by a select few of uh, mostly uh, journalists who, uh, you know, it, it doesn't seem like it's about the, the people's band. You know, let the people right. do the do the deciding. So that's that's my opinion on that. You can go online, and I guess they have. Uh, you can vote online. 
Right. But, but I, you know, I, I, I wonder how far that gets because yeah. a lot yeah. of it's Jan Wenner and his underlings. And Dave Marsh. It's and Jan Dave Wenner Marsh. and Dave Marsh. Right. Used to be For, Phil yeah. Spector. Before, For real, uh, yeah, yeah. Before he decided, but, I mean, they're going to run out of, murderer. yeah. You know, they're going to run out of people eventually because, it, it, like, how how far into the um, very recent past are you going to go? You know, the first five or six years of it, they they kind of covered all the obvious, right? You know, founding mothers and fathers of rock and roll, and then it's got to be tricky. I mean, you know, it's got to be a tricky thing. But I I think it's just a a, a club uh, a, a, that's bought and paid for. That's my opinion of it. Bad company, not in. Yeah. Oh, I mean, we could spend a whole podcast listing people not in. But guess who? Not in. Yeah, yeah. Warren Zevon, not in. I mean, it's it's insane. Yeah. It is insane. People's, the people's favorites versus the critics' favorites. And like David Lee Roth said, music critics love Elvis Costello because most music critics look like Elvis Costello. Oh, this is back in the <laughs> late 70s. Right. And I love both David Lee Roth and Elvis Costello, but I thought it was a funny kind of little uh, jab at the, at the whole system. Yeah, I never understood that. Uh, certain bands were not favorites of the press, the rock, you know, journalists of the late seventies. So, well, yeah, and and there there was like some amazing rock journalists. I mean, I love Lester Bangs, I love Cream. Yep. Um, you know, all of that whole thing. But I think a, a lot of the other folks, um, if they didn't really kind of cater to them and go out of their way to fawn over them as writers, that that they they, you know, it's I mean, it's a relationship. It's a relationship, and it's. It, the, the the volleyball's got to go over one side of the net and back over again. So um, I, I I don't think they had good relationships with a, a lot of them, right. and that may have affected them. And you know who knows? I mean, they may have um, ran into them backstage and tried to get a legit interview or, or a chat. And the the particular artist or band were behaving like jerks, or maybe they were just trashed. And so it you know it can work both ways, but that shouldn't affect their work. You know, if you're reviewing somebody's record and they were rude to you backstage, I'm I'm, I'm second guessing this whole thing but just human nature it's a relationship and if something is a little off then it probably affected their reviews i'm, I'm sure i know led zeppelin had problems with um i forget who it was now betty rollins or one oh, of those tons yeah i mean it's like yeah she ran out screaming because of something john bonham had done and you know <laughs> and i'm sure the review reflected yeah. it sure um, yeah Another uh, COVID-related situation related to music is that some bands were given the Paycheck Protection Program, uh, the right. U.S. government, and yeah. people read that wrong at first. They said, what do you mean bands are getting it? But it, the Eagles, Guns N' Roses, Pearl Jam, they weren't the recipients, but it was the crew, the tour. Yeah. Some of these, these guys people have, have... They have hundreds and hundreds of people depending on them. Of course. Uh, the road crew, just everybody. I mean, caterers, wardrobe... Um, you know, sound drivers, truck drivers, you know, folks have families. So the, the band's name as an organization, as a trademark, um, you know, company stamp, they would receive that. And, and yeah, absolutely. They took care of their crews. And, you know, I, I heard a lot of inside stories about that, that they, they, you know, so many big artists just really took good care of their, all of their people. Because everyone took it on the chin in 2020. Oh, yeah. Yep. And then, I mean, scared. you know, yeah. the Eagles, the U2s, you know the Rolling Stones. They certainly don't need the money. They're not gonna. You know, they they they. There's so much money coming in from the publishing and royalties and stuff like that. You know, you know the merchandise people, the people that sell the T-shirts, and you know they're out of work. So I I I think you're right. They they were received the they were the recipients of that. Now you mentioned earlier it's not a political show, but what do you think about Tom Petty's estate suing the Trump campaign for using? I think it was. Should be using free falling. It won't. Yeah, <laughs> I won't back down. Uh, yeah, I won't back down. Yeah, oh, it's great. 
I mean, he would have. If he had been alive, he would have went ballistic. He would have went just as ballistic as Springsteen did when Reagan used Born in the USA. And But in the know, same situation, there's no legal standing for that because these songs are copywritten. Anyone's allowed to, to use it. Yeah. So you right, right, and I'm 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 not an expert on the legal matter. Yeah, you can't trademark a song. Um, this yeah, this has happened before, and uh, you know, uh, as an artist, how do you feel about your music? You know, you write a song, and you have like when John Lennon wrote Revolution, he wasn't thinking of selling Nike shoes. Right, that is what ended up happening. Yeah, Um, people all because Michael Jackson outbid Paul McCartney on the Beatles catalog. Exactly right. Yeah. So he. uh, It's all publishing. I, I would I would react the same way. I would take every legal step, everything I could do within my power, if someone was using one of my songs that I felt strongly against, yeah. to stop it. And uh, that's all you can do, you know. So they're they're going to let the courts decide, and they're going to, you know, it's a cease and desist order, and um, so it's going to be up to the courts, and you know, the the the, the law will speak. But you know, I, I he, he absolutely, there's no way in in Hades, Tom Petty would have been fine with that. No. No, of course and not. I think it happened with the Rolling Stones too. Um, wasn't there somebody that w- that was um, running? This might have been a few years ago, and they and they they squashed it, and it was successful. But I can't remember. Was, this has happened. You know, this has happened many times. Sure. Yeah, I think it was with uh, George W. Bush. I think so. I think you're right. Yeah. Yep. What have you been um, up to work wise? Obviously, no one's working, but in terms of writing, have you been uh, working on? Yeah, any- I've been writing some uh, some new songs, and I have. I have so many notebooks full of half written songs and just titles like a chord progression. So I'm going back and I'm, I'm kind of like filling in the blanks, which is really cool. And, and I have stuff going back, you know, many, many years. And so, you know, it's really nice to go and kind of um, change course from what I was originally intending and write it from this point of view. And also to just go back and um, kind of edit, stuff you know like when you first or me speaking for me when i first started writing uh, i use way too many words like really wordy and I, you go back and you don't need all those words you know so I, i'm doing a lot of that stuff where i'll i'll cross it out with a pencil i won't erase it or smudge it so i'll remember the original idea and it'll flow better it's not poetry it's not it's meant to be sung so right if it, do, it, if it doesn't sing right you know and you know there's some songs that are that's the whole point of it. Like it's the end of the world as we know it by REM songs with like a million words in it. And that's, that was done intentionally. But I looking back on a lot of my first songs, I was really influenced by Elvis Costello when I first started writing. And so my first bunch of songs just sounded a lot like early Elvis Costello. And and there was a lot of words in those, you know, his, his earlier punky stuff. But so I've just been doing that. And, um, I did have a, a, a few private parties and private functions that got canceled. Unfortunately, but I didn't really take that giant of a hit because, I, as I said last time, I, I don't do it full time anymore. So, you know, I'm thankful to have a great day job. I work in human services. Uh, I work with adults with disabilities, and I, I really love it. So I'm able to, to um, I don't have to pay the rent doing music anymore, which is what I did for many years, you know. Right. In fact, you paid, black and white paid some bills many times, and I thank you for that. Well, we try. <laughs> you know, like you said, the Stones take care of their guys. We try to take care of ours, yes, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On a very different scale. Yeah, yeah. You've done yeah. some session work over the years. I think touched a little bit about it, but any anecdotes? I, I really had a, a really um, varied experience. You know, like we spoke about last time, most of the big names that, that I worked with, I was a second engineer or assistant engineer. So the Barbra Streisand, the first record I ever worked on was No Doubt's first record. Um, and I actually became friends with Gwen Stefani's brother, 
who was he was the band leader. He was sort of the Brian Wilson of the band, and he was brilliant, really really nice guy, really funny. Um, so I, I thought that was great. Like we 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 got along really great. And um, but you know when I moved back to Rhode Island, I started doing a lot of sessions out of Sound Station Seven, which is no longer there uh, in Providence. Mm. So I worked with um, Joe Gittleman of the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones. He had a side project called Avoid One Thing. Um, I worked with Joe Joe the Kid Serials, who's the drummer from the Boss Tones. He played on a song called Lipton and Edie off my second CD, Hats and Shoes. I played with the late, great Johnny Cunningham, who's one of the legendary fiddle players of our time. This guy, you know, if you're into Celtic fiddle stuff, he was the fiddle player in the Rain Dogs with Mark Cutler. But he had this career way before that. He was doing a record and he had me play acoustic bass on a couple of, um, it was sort of like Irish folk music. That was cool. I played keyboards on with the Swing and Neckbreakers, one of my favorite cult bands. Uh, look them up, kids, the Swing and Neckbreakers. Where were they out of? They were out of New Jersey, and I played keyboard uh, on that. Um, I played keyboard on a couple of ro- uh, Amazing Royal Crown songs. Um, so I could get around on a few different instruments. Um, and, and you know, I, I always thought that was really cool. And uh, it was, it was you know, it was a lot of fun. Like, I never knew what, what was going to come next. I mean, see, I just rattled off, like, the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones, you know, Celtic. Completely different Johnny. genres. And yeah, and different different instruments. Um, the Swing and Neckbreakers were actually on an episode of The Sopranos, which I thought was really great. And they were really cool guys, and they were like garage rock. So I I played like Farfisa and oh Hattie really three yeah yeah. Um, when I was playing uh, keyboards in the Itchies, the fabulous Itchies, we opened up for them a few times, and um, that was really that was really fun. So what episode of The Sopranos was it? Do you remember? I don't remember. I don't remember. I but I thought it was great. Yeah. But a lot of assistant engineering, you know, early on, a lot of setting up mics, wrapping mic cables. I was taught the right way to wrap a mic cable. And would you do it, Ronnie Wood? I was his, I was an assistant. He was he was recording his um his solo record there in the early '90s. I think it was called Slide, Slide on, on This. Slide on This. Yeah. Yeah. Great record. Yeah, yeah. So he was doing like pre-production rhythm tracks, and so I was there. I was there just you know, and I actually he was really nice. I had worked with an engineer named Michael Mike Carnavali. Um, who worked with the Stones back when they were doing um, Emotional Rescue, and he remembered him. And he actually went up to Toronto when Keith uh, when Keith Moon... Keith Moon, wow. Keith Richards had to go back with the New Barbarians to play a charity concert for the blind to get out of his his jail sentence for oh, the heroin bus. Oh, yeah, 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 78. And so so yeah. this guy went up there, and he remembered him. Um, and so he was really cool. And he was with Ian McClagan. I used to go see Ian McClagan who's uh you know the keyboard player of faces. The faces yeah he would do a so, um solo gigs at this place on sunset strip called coconut teaser and um ronnie wood showed up at that and he was there and he sat in they played sweet lady mary i think um and he was like hey uh, he pointed at me he's like oh you're the kid from the studio and uh so that was really cool you know and, and again just very very useful um kind of crash course for me uh to to like just see the inner inner engine room of a recording studio not as a musician, which right. really served me later when I did started doing recording, stu- you know, sessions with different bands. You know, you and I recorded with the late great Joe Moody, of course, at Danger Multitrack. Um, that was great. So I learned a lot just from watching, keeping my eyes and ears open, um, mic techniques and things like that. It was really cool and and a lot of fun. And what's the atmosphere like in a Ron Wood session? I mean, is it tense? Uh, is it loose? No, is it just professional? yeah, loose. Just total fun. Yeah, not. No, I didn't see any like debauchery or heavy partying. I think he was, you know, it wasn't Beyond like nineteen seventy five. Right, right, right. Um, so you know, just fun. 
just really fun, jovial, like play, like just true play, like like kids playing in a, on a playground. That's that's what it was like. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm a huge Stones fan. You're a huge Stones fan. Oh yeah, and like me, you like Harry Nielsen as well. Love and it, Robert Gordon, and yeah, oh yeah, Roxy Music. Chris I have, has I still have all of them. Pussycats, the album that he did with Nilsson did with John Lennon in oh, Los Angeles. I have that on record. vinyl. Great record. Yeah, I have that on vinyl in my parents' basement. I don't think Chris was on that one, but he was on these. Gotta get up, gotta get out, gotta get home before the morning comes. What if I'm late? Got a big day, gotta get home before the sun comes up. We sail tonight for Singapore. Don't fall asleep while you're ashore. Cross your heart and hope to die. When you hear the children cry But is it in your conscience That you're after Another glance of a madman I find out honest it'll be easier and less time consuming to list the people my guest hasn't played guitar for over his five decade career in the music business he's worked on sessions for artists such as jack bruce brian ferry robert gordon harry nielsen elton john the sex pistols the pretenders paul mccartney and oh yeah by the way also has a successful solo career please welcome to the it's only rock and roll podcast guitar legend chris spedding hello chris Hi there. Hi. How are you doing? Very well. Thank you for doing this. Oh, my pleasure. You have got to be the most prolific guitar player, not just in the UK, but in rock and roll, period. Do you ever get tired of hearing that? Well, I hear that quite a bit. It's not necessarily that true. I was very active in the uh, studios in London in the 70s. So, yeah, I did a, a lot of stuff back then. Not, not as much work around now, but uh, I still keep busy. Well, before we get into all that, you mentioned not having work now. Obviously, 2020 has been a washout for live music. And for a person that's so used to being on stage all the time, how are you getting through this period? Actually, I'm really enjoying it. Really? That's good. <laughs> well, you know, I've uh, been very busy having to sort of show up on time and, and, and do my thing. So not having to do that for a while. It's uh, Actually, I'm starting to feel guilty about not feeling guilty uh, <laughs> about about being so lazy. I like lazing around at home. Sure. Thinking, well, you know, this can't go on forever. So I hope uh, all this craziness um, comes to an end soon. Maybe, maybe next year we'll be back. Some semblance of, uh, of doing some live shows. I don't know. And where do you call home now? I'm in uh, West Sussex, which is on the south coast of the UK. Okay. Now you got to forgive me if some of these questions are out of order. You've just had such a vast and colossal career. I'm kind of jumping all over the place to start with. Tell me the first time and what you remember hearing for the first time American rock and roll. Huh. Well, we had this thing in the 50s called Skiffle, which you might have heard of if you were... Uh, like Lonnie Donegan. Uh, and- 
Yeah, you know, the, the Beatles were very into it. They had a skiffle group mm. called the Quarrymen and everything. So I'm of that generation. So it wasn't American, but what, what Lonnie Donegan was doing, he was taking Americana music, as we call it now, you know, like Lead Belly, Woody Guthrie, all that stuff, Carter family, and making his own music out of it called Skiffle. So, so uh, at one remove, I got into American music by Lonnie Donegan. And then, of course, later got into Elvis. Um, I remember I had a friend at school. I would have been about 12 or 13 at the time. Uh, I was, I had everything that Lonnie Donegan had put out and he was saying, no, Lonnie's not cool. You've got to get into this guy, Elvis, you know? <laughs> and I know to present generation, Elvis is probably not that cool, but I tell you about back in 1957, he was cool. <laughs> oh, he's still cool. Um, he's very cool. Well, so yeah, yeah. But Every time you mention Elvis, the, the, the sort of image comes in people's minds of the of the rhinestone white jumpsuit. That's not the Elvis that we all like refer to in our minds. Uh, my generation, right? It's the sort of dangerous looking guy that that, 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 that appeared on the Ed Sullivan show. You know? Pre-army Elvis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was the Elvis we all like were were totally besotted by. Sure. Uh, so yeah. Let's get that one out of the way. <laughs> so so all, all that came with it, you know, Gene Vincent, Eddie Cochran, Rick Nelson, all those great guitar players like Scotty Moore and James Burton, we were all into that. Mm-hmm. We didn't know their names then. Of course, you know, an Elvis Presley record would say Elvis Presley with the Jordanaires. Right. And we all thought, oh, oh, the Jordanaires was his backing group, not thinking that it was just the vocal group, not the musicians. Right, right. The instrumental. Right. So we, we, we find all this out like much later on, about 10 years on, we find out the details of all that. You know. Then I heard when you were getting guitar lessons, there was a teacher that was kind of instrumental in getting you into less rock and roll and more into a jazz thing. Well, yeah, my parents, God bless them, they sort of, because uh, I started on the violin and they were really disappointed being classically oriented right. musicians that I was you know, forsaking the violin. So they, they said, you've got to go to a proper teacher if you're going to play this horrible guitar, electric guitar. I remember when I first asked, asked for an amplifier to go with my guitar, they said, well, Segovia doesn't need an amplifier. <laughs> so this, this was the sort of atmosphere I had to yeah. sort of put, up, put up with. And so they sent me to a local guy. And of course, in the late 50s, sort of guy that would teach you this sort of guitar would, would be a jazz, a jazz guy, a guy with a jazz background. So, sort of influenced by him, I became a bit of a snob, and I would only listen to Charlie Christian and Barney Kessel and West Montgomery, people like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I went through a period, you know, what how teenagers can get, they can get really snobby about something right. when they, they realize that, oh, there's all this other world of guitar playing out there, and these guys, you know, like my model would have been like the Shadows, which mm-hmm. is the, the, the equivalent to your ventures over there. Right. So, yeah, then I sort of thought, oh, that, that guy can't play, you know, and I can't play as, as well as Barney Kessel and the incredible snobbishness about it. And so, in a way, that made me more eclectic and more um, versatile in my playing and probably uh, influenced my playing a lot, much more than if I'd just stayed with the rock. Sure. But I did have, but my first thing was the rock, you know, Elvis and the skiffle and everything. And then I diverted to the sort of jazz thing. Towards the end of the 60s, I realized that jazz wasn't really at the cutting edge of where things were going because I was starting to realize that uh, when I started, rock and roll was like, it was considered uh, really 
not proper music. It was considered how a lot of the older generation look at rap today. Oh, that's not music. Or right. Or right. But when the Beatles started becoming accepted by all, everybody loved the Beatles in the mid-60s, mid mm -hmm. it changed. The Beatles were doing stuff that was actually quite respectable and quite, quite forward-looking, and uh, you know, I came quite quite interested in them. Yeah. And so the the jazz thing took a, a back seat, and then when Miles Davis started adding electronic stuff, you know, like Miles Davis was no longer leading the way in jazz. He was he was uh, trying to be like Sly Stone, sure. pitch right. group. So uh, rock was the way to go. And I went. I, I already had the rock roots with the, my Elvis days. There was a period there in the early 70s where I was playing with a lot of the new jazz fusion people in England uh, because I think they gravitated to me because I had the jazz, um, the ref, there were the references, references. you know, okay. like if, if, if they gave me a chord sequence and a chart and say, can you do this and play a couple of choruses of that and then we'll play this chord. And, and I could relate to that because of my jazz days, um, whereas many uh, rock guys would have thought, what are you, what are you talking about? <laughs> right, right, right. So, so I think I was I, I played with a lot of guys around 1970-71. Well, what came first, the session work or being with the Battered Ornaments? Battered Ornaments, I think. Peter Brown was in that band. Peter Brown, lyricist for Jack Bruce, and oh. that's how I got to meet yeah. Jack Bruce. Um, and so I think after I got on that Songs for a Taylor record, that put my name around a little bit as a session guy. Uh, so I think it started from there. I have to thank Jack for that. Um, and I started getting calls from the fixers, as we call them, you know, the contractors for, for, for sessions. Session man, you gotta play it like you mean it. Session man, even though you've never seen it before. Give me a little bit of James Brown. Stack sound, come on, Stevie. You gotta do the best you can for the man. Give me a little bit of Juicy Lucy. Richie Havens. Roll over to Juicy. I am misbehaving. Oh, everybody wants a session man. Session We're on the track never tell your mother she's out of tune that's right and yeah. george harrison was on that too were you in the in the same session with him or did he do that separately i wasn't i wasn't on that no i wasn't on that i heard about that later mm -hmm. about how george got his sound yeah on the telecast on the telecaster with the uh, all the trouble turned off and uh, the lyric that peter brown had written was actually as a result of a story that i'd told him about my own mother who sang in a bark choir, and I went to hear, hear her play with a, a, a local orchestra in a church. They used to do things like bark and the handle, you know, the passion right. and the all that stuff. And I, I, I made the remark to my mother that the uh, string orchestra was a little out of tune. Uh, I was a bit sort of full of myself. Yeah, I made this remark to my mother, and she was most 
most upset. I was I was full of my chops as I'd just been I I'd just started being a very busy and earning a lot of money and I thought, you know, there's been a bit pompous saying you know, you shouldn't really make comments about other people's music, especially if it's your mother. So that's the origin of that title. Interesting. I know you guys, along with King Crimson, were one of the opening bands for the Stones at Hyde Park. Yeah, we got on as the, the band before the Stones, yeah, at the, the park. Okay. That was really because the people that promoted the Stones in the park were our managers, Black Hill Enterprises. Uh-huh. So that's why we got the plum spot. And didn't they use your truck? Yes, we had a, uh, appropriately for a, a band called the Battered Ornaments, we had a, a, a British Army Fields Ambulance as our gig van. And it had no windows, of course, being an ambulance. So I, I remember I had a really bad attack of hay fever and I was keeping out of the sun in the truck and I got asked unceremoniously to leave because they wanted to borrow the truck to get the stones uh, into the park. So I was I was not, not too pleased about that, but... Uh, our, our truck was used by the Stones. It was one of those situations where the limo came in, which yeah. was a, de- uh, which, which was a, a um, what do you call it? A, like a decoy. A, a deco- decoy. Yeah. That's, that's the word I was looking for. <laughs> <laughs> right. So uh, anyway, when they arrived and went on stage, I just went back in the truck. That's why I didn't see the show. <laughs> uh, you played on the original concept LP for the Jesus Christ Superstar production. Uh, yeah, we were asked to do link passages because I was in a fusion band called Nucleus. And on our album, we sort of recorded link passages to our tunes. So that it sounded like the whole LP side was a segue, was actually one performance. Okay. And I think um, uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber liked that idea and wanted us to do that for Jesus Christ Superstar album. So he hired our band uh, and we did some of that. And I, I, I don't think a, a lot of it was used. I think really? Might have one one of our little leak passages might have been used. So yeah, I'm actually on the album. But to be honest, I never bought the album, so I don't. I don't know about. What, <laughs> I can't be buying all the albums yeah. I played on. I'd, oh I'd my god, you go, to do it. No, I'd nobody never, could. You'd go broke. I'd never have time, time to uh, work. <laughs> <laughs> exactly right. And you also worked on uh, two albums for Harry Nielsen, Nielsen Schmielsen, and yes. Son of Schmielsen. Yes. Was it the full band? Because I know Peter Frampton was on that. Yes, I remember Peter was there and Ringo was on it and Anne Klaus Foreman, Herbie Flowers. Herbie Flowers, sometimes. right, yeah. And Barry Morgan, you know, the drummer, uh, and um, Nick. Um, Nicky Hopkins? Nicky Hopkins, yeah, yeah. I'm losing my names. Nicky Hopkins. And Richard and, Perry, uh, how was he to work for? Was he a taskmaster? He, he was a bit, yeah. I remember we, uh, we would uh, be, be booked a couple of consecutive days. And we'd do about the takes we'd be getting into that seventy take, take seventy, take seventy one, take seventy of some some track. Mm. We'd come back the next morning, and there'd be the, the, the ashtray would be piled high with cigarette butts. They'd obviously been there all night listening to these tracks. And I remember that uh, overhearing Richard Perry say, "Yeah, take number two is the best." <laughs> Which, which is what ne- nearly always used to happen in those days when we used to do take after take after take. They got worse and worse and worse. You get more and more into it. Right. And uh, when you eventually had the um, subjectiveness to uh, listen to everything, you realize that the, first, the earlier takes were the ones. How was session musicians paid then? I mean, was it by the hour? Was it for the session? What was the, the nuts and bolts yeah, of that? Yeah, we got a session was three hours. Okay. Uh, we didn't get paid that much in the 70s. American session rate was a lot, lot more. Mm. And sometimes, I mean, when I got really established, I used to work for double scale. Okay. 
but uh, the, the, that was not common in in Britain, and you know, you didn't get that much. It wasn't a great. If you're working all the time, you you you, you earned a good a good uh, amount of money, right. but you had to keep working to keep that lifestyle up. Sure. Just one more of those. Do you remember the session questions? Elton John, Madman Cross the Water. Yes, I remember that session. It took place in the same studio as the Nilsson sessions in Trident mm-hmm. in Soho. And um, I remember it was a, uh, a full orchestra with uh, Paul Buckmaster conducting and there were full string section, which was quite amazing in, in, in Trident because Trident was, uh, was a kind of small, very small studio with the with the control room tucked in the roof. You had to walk upstairs to get into, into uh, And underneath the, where the, the playback room was, was where the drum booth was. And it's amazing that we got all those musicians in there. I guess it's a bit like what happened on the in in, in Hitsville in Detroit in the Motown sessions. Yep. Small rooms. Uh, when you, yep. Getting when, you hear, when you hear some of those full, fully orchestrated, you know, with horns and strings and some of those, and then you look at that room, how did they ever get in there, you know? Mm. Uh, similar thing. But it was a memorable session. I remember it. I think Elton was there. Uh, the... Um, I'm using the name of the producer. Um, Gus Dudgeon? Gus Dudgeon was there, yeah. yeah. Uh, and it was, uh, um, I think it was Barry Morgan and Herbie Flowers on, on, on bass and drum. I was on, on guitar. And it was just, uh, yeah, it wasn't like lots of overdubs later. It was done live. Uh, the Madman Across the Water track. Herbie was with T-Rex for a bit. Did you ever run to Mark Bowen much? I ran into him in the studios a couple of times in one of the clubs one night. Uh, Seemed a nice chap just before he died. Actually, uh, Herbie was on most of those records. They um, they overdubbed him afterwards because uh, uh, Tony um, Visconti, the producer, mm-hmm. used to use him on T Rex and on David Bowie's. Uh, yep. he, he was a, he was a bass player on everything from Space Oddity record on, onwards. Yep. So uh, Tony Visconti always used to use Herbie, much to the chagrin of the uh, bass player that Mark had on the top of the pops all the time. Um, oh, st- was this uh, Steve? Steve Curry, yeah, yeah. Who, who also played with me at one point. Oh yeah, uh, after it was after uh, Mark had gone. Yeah. Uh, speaking of bass players, you joined the Sharks with uh, Freeze bass player Andy Frazier. That's right. Now, because you can definitely see a period, especially in England, where the hippie '60s thing was getting out of fashion and morphing more into a pre-punk. 50s rocker kind of comeback. I don't know if I'm... I'm ne- there was a, a genre called the pub rock, which was pre-punk garage bands and stuff. Mm. And we missed the uh, glam rock thing, which was also happening with T-Rex and Roxy Music. Right. All those shocks opened for Roxy Music on their second tour. Um, well, we were we were into the R&B, the blue, blue-eyed soul type thing, that, the same thing that Free was into. And, well, it wasn't a commercial success. I mean, we made a couple of nice records. Uh, Andy left the band, band after the first we recorded the first record. I got to r- hook up with him a little later, the year before he died, uh, which was nice. Yeah. Um, I always rated him as a brilliant musician, good writer, and great bass player. I've been lucky with my bass players: uh, Jack Bruce, Andy Fraser, Herbie Flowers. Yeah, the best. <laughs> so uh, yeah. yeah. And I understand you recustomized your Pontiac Le Mans. Oh yeah, we we had some art guy do it, uh, painted it, painted waves on the side, put teeth on the front and a fin on the top. Yeah, that that, that didn't last long. I smashed that up after a couple of months. Oh, did you? <laughs> <laughs> cool. And then right around that time, you had your biggest solo hit with motorbiking. It's a roots rock, but it's also a prototype for the punk rock vibe. 
It way. was, yeah. The look, the look, the biker look with the uh, straight leg jeans and the leather jacket was not the current rock star attire right. in 1975. Anticipated the punk thing by a, a good eighteen months to two years, which is probably quite why they kind of gravitated to me, and I, uh, I got to produce their first demos, the Sex Pistols. Because right. uh, well, the, the first thing was that if we wanted to get that look, fifties look, the greaser look, the Vivian Westman shop that she had with Malcolm McLaren was the place to get new clothes like that. Mm-hmm. So they knew me as a sort of established musician. And I got to eventually hear the band. Didn't Chrissy Hine so, take uh, you over to see them? She did, yeah. Yeah, yeah I knew Chrissy from, uh, I'd met her on 1974 with a tour I did with John Cale. So it was well well before the um, she got the Pretenders together. And she knew Malcolm. She Well, she knew a lot of stuff. Uh, she was really on the scene for a long time before she got the Pretenders together. And she got me down to the 100 Club to see them, yeah. What'd you think? Oh, I liked, I liked them. I liked them. Yeah. Um, I was a bit bemused by the fact that there were less people at the end of the show than there were at the beginning. <laughs> to sort of frighten people off. Yeah. But uh, when I was hearing the, the disdain which the music industry held them, you know, like people wouldn't come down to their gigs and 
I would never get signed up. I said, look, I can help you get signed up because what you need to do is to uh, do a three-song demo. You're never going to get the, any, any record executives down to your shows. They'd be frightened. Yeah. Of being, being beaten up. <laughs> and they were getting bad so, press before people even saw them. They were, yeah. 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 Uh, so what were the three so songs? That's, well, at the time, I, I, I went to a rehearsal. I said, look, I'm going to choose three songs. Play me everything you got. And so I went to their rehearsal in Denmark Street, their rehearsal place they had, and I chose Problems, Pretty Vacant, and um, No Feelings. Mm -hmm. They hadn't written God Save the Queen at that point, but those were their best three songs. So I recorded those, and I, it got them their deal with EMI. And, and I sent it to Chris Thomas, and it got them their producer. So which I, I knew Chris Thomas because he was producing me. Yeah, They loved the idea of Chris Thomas because they were all like closet uh, Roxy Music fans. <laughs> Although they, they, their publicity would never have said that until a lot later. And of course, you have a great relationship with uh, Brian Ferry. Yeah, at that time, I'd done Let's Stick Together with Brian. Yeah. Actually, I want to give you this quote. Someone said, Chris Spedding was one of the few guys who it was cool to like before punk and after punk. Oh, well, that's uh, nice to hear. <laughs> I don't think the uh, punk has really uh, warmed to me because I was, well, I was, I was in my 30s by the time punk happened, you know. Way over the so hill. I, yeah, I was a boring old fart to them. So, I mean, <laughs> I realized that. And, I, and also, I couldn't really, the sort of nihilistic attitude and that. And the anger. You yeah. Know, I, was, I got nothing to be angry about in 1976. I'd already had a hit record of the career. There you go. You know? Yeah, so, right, right. <laughs> so, I couldn't really endorse the, uh, the young sort of 20-year-old uh, angst. So, I just let them go their own way and went my own way. Sure. And it was just fascinating to be involved in, in, in something on the ground floor of a new movement. Uh, so I was happy to be involved, you know. And I've seen it written, and you have you have a lot of integrity because you've always set the story straight. You did not turn the stones down to replace Mick Taylor. Tell it how it no, really I happened. I wasn't offered the gig, but I was I was rung, by, rung up by uh, Mick Jagger. I think uh, Mick Taylor had, had left in sort of January or something, 74. And I always say it's, it's a bit like when the Pope dies. You know, the, all the music papers <laughs> had like little vignettes of all these guitar players, like Ray Gallagher, Jeff Beck, Clapton. You know, Waiting who, for the who, white who could, smoke to appear. Who could, who could possibly be the new Pope with the Rolling Stones, yeah. Right. And I, I, I was on that list. Uh, and so I was a bit put out that six months went by and I never heard from them. <laughs> <laughs> M meanwhile, I'd recorded motorbiking. It hadn't quite hit the charts yet. I had like uh, uh, John Cale with Roy Harper. I had a full date book. So I, then I get a call from Mick Jagger and I just say, look, mate, that's it's great. If you're st the Stones are doing a tour of uh, America in August, I've got a full date book. I'm, I'm busy. Uh, maybe another time. And, and Mick said, oh, yeah, OK, right. And that's the end of that. Maybe I should have kept quiet about it. Uh, and then uh, what, it's a bit embarrassing to have to keep explaining that. Let me ask you, in hindsight, do you think that would have been the right move for you? I don't think I'd have ended up getting the gig. That would have just strung me along. People like Jeff Beck were flying, flying over to Amsterdam and putting themselves in a hotel at their own expense. And then, sorry, no rehearsals today, Jeff. We'll see you tomorrow. You know, if they treated Jeff Beck like that. Wow. Well, how are they going to treat me? Uh, and in the end, it was uh, about a week after this phone call, it was um, announced that Ron Wood was going to be the guitar player. So they, I think they'd already decided. And I, th I think uh, reading into it my, from my, my side, I, I think Mick Jagger wanted his guy in the band. Yeah. 
So he called me up thinking, wondering if I'd be his guy. And he saw from my, my reaction that there was no way I was going to be his guy. I was going to be my guy. And so uh, he probably said, oh, okay, we'll go with, uh, we'll go with uh, Keith's, Keith's guy. Right? Yeah. <laughs> right, right. So, you know, maybe I'm just reading too much into it, but maybe there you go. Now, most of our listeners are in the States. So please explain to us what a Womble is and how you came to be associated with them. Oh, it was just like an, uh, another session. Yeah. I knew this guy, Mike Bat. He he had, had a job with this kiddies show where a lot of Muppets, a bit like Muppets, yeah. but they were uh, imaginary uh, Wombles, Wimbledon Common. You know, Wimbledon where the tennis is. Yeah, there's a, there's a big common there, and the Wombles were uh, the, the, apparently they would go around clearing up the rubbish uh, <laughs> that people, all the litter that people would leave. They'd go around and they'd have a tidy bag. And then sort of pick up the litter and put it. And I never saw a show, but he he was commissioned to write the signature tune, so he did, and it was a hit. So Mike, being a resourceful guy, he turned it into a little cottage industry. There, he, he we all the musicians would dress up in these uh, furry outfits. You know, it was uh, that's what it was. It was a bit like the you would have something called the Arches, like a cartoon. Right. Well, we we had the Wombles, and and he was very resourceful in doing. Remember, you're a womble, you know, a wombling Merry Christmas, oh, and in the hall of the mountain womble, uh, or stuff like that. I'm getting the gist, uh, yeah. And it was uh, very, very uh, resourceful of him, and uh, very clever. Mm. And he used big, old, big, old, big orchestrations. And his voice, Mike Bat's voice, was the voice of the lead womble, uh, which in later, in his later career, was a bit of a curse because. He was a, quite a recognizable voice, and when he tried to do his own songs, proper pop songs, right. nobody would play them because it sounded like the Wombles. So he had to get other people like uh, Art Garfunkel, we wrote Bright Eyes for, which was also on, mm-hmm. and um, uh, he got artists to sing his songs that he, he really wrote for himself, but the, the DJs wouldn't play them because they sounded like Womble songs. So there were great songs, which was such a shame. That's the Wombles. I'm going to teach you a dance that you can't resist. I've decided to call it the Wombling Twist. When you learn to do it, we can dance all day. Wombling Twist in the night of the wind. Let's twist, 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 do the Wombling Twist. Let's twist, 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 do the Wombling Twist. Let's twist. You relocated to the States in late 70s, 78, around there, and yep. started up uh, with Robert Gordon. You came after Link Ray left him, or was there was there an overlap with you and Link? Or no, you- um, I um, Link was doing one of my tunes, uh, Wild Wild Women, with Robert, uh, and I got called up by the producer, Richard Goddard, did I want to sort of do a session with them when they recorded it, uh, and I sort of thought, well, that's not a bad idea. And I was thinking of moving from London to New York at the time. I got a call back a few days after saying, well, by the way, Chris, uh, Link and Robert are going to split up. Do you want to try out for the job of guitar player? So I thought, oh, this is a great way to get myself into New York because I'll be coming in and doing doing a gig. Mm. I'll have a gig. So I went for that. And that was the beginning of my association with Robert. There's a great clip of you with Robert at the Lone Star. I guess it would be 1985 with Stevie Ray Vaughan playing Linda Lou. Oh, right. Man, that's I love that. Okay. And uh, your work is just phenomenal with him. And it continues to this day. Again, you, your relationships are not one-offs. I mean, you stayed loyal to these people and vice versa. Yeah, on and off with Brian, on and off with Robert. Yeah. Yep. Well, I hope next year you guys come around here. 
are scheduled. All the shows that were cancelled this summer, uh, the American shows, we're hoping to reschedule them next summer, 2021. Have you ever counted up how many sessions you actually played on? No. No. The guy, the guy who does my website has got like a bit of a handle on that. The guy in uh, in Japan, Toshio, who does my website, he's got like a whole discography on the website. Well, let me ask you, looking back, what's the most, what's the one that you're proudest of? Uh, session work or my own albums? Let's start with session work. Session work. Well, I suppose the Brian Ferry stuff is good. Uh, uh, working with Brian is always, he always gets something different. Uh, you know, the stuff I did in Your Mind album in 1977 was good. Mm -hmm. Some of the stuff I did on the Let's Stick Together album. Okay. Um, and how about your own work? Well, the Hurt album is the best sounding album. That was the one that Chris Thomas produced. It's great. Yeah. Um, and the one with the car on the front, the Chris Benning album. But I've done albums since. Uh, of course, you always try and get them better and better. Even though the fans might not think so, you got to please we yourself. We, yeah, yeah, we, yeah. We end up pleasing ourselves in the end. So the last album I did is called Joyland, and it's on a Cleopatra label. Well, that's where Robert's on, yeah. And I'm on one of his, as yep. you know. Oh yeah. And um, I got another one on my fiftieth anniversary in the music biz. That's great. Last year or the year before, called Face to Face. I heard a quote from you. I want to make sure I get it right here. I wrote it down. There's nothing more boring than being respected. It's just not what rock and roll is all about. I mean, I didn't respect Eddie Cochran. I just thought he was far out, and I don't want people to respect yeah. <laughs> me. Get into that a yeah. little bit. Uh, well, that was when I was uh, doing the motorbiking stuff, and uh, you know, like people that buy that sort of record are not like doing it out of respect. They're buying it. They're buying it because I think it's cool. It's it's exciting and. Uh, the young kids will like it. And I really did that record because I wanted to create the same excitement that I felt when I was a teenager, you know, listening to Elvis and Eddie Cochran and Gene Vincent. Sure. So that's why I sort of manufactured that sound around that and the look and everything around what excited me when I was a young kid. And I wanted to do the same to the younger generation, which was quite a lot younger than me at that time. I'd have been approaching 30 when I did motorbiking. Um, 31, in fact. I was born in 44, and that was in 75. So, uh, yeah, it came off that once. It succeeded that once. Uh, that, that quote is yeah. uh, from around that time. You still feel the same way? Um, I've, I've modified my views a little bit, because <laughs> you do when you uh, get to my age. Sure. Um, I saw a little bit of both. But I think the, the old thing about getting too serious about music is... is uh, I don't think you should get too serious about it. Right. So the res the respect thing is a bit. It's still a bit boring. We want people to be excited, you know, and sort of say, "Oh, wow, this is great!" You know, I feel like dancing, or I feel like you know, getting up and doing something, or uh, let's hear that again. You know, that's not respect. That's should just sheer enjoyment and, and, and entertainment, and that's what I'm hoping that I'm doing with my music. Every guitar player that I know respects you very much. You'll have to live with it. I'll take that. And of course, the one and only Chris Betting, ladies and gentlemen, Chris Betting. The lonesome train, oh, the lonesome train. Sad and lonely On the lonesome train On the lonesome train 
Yeah, originally done by Johnny Panetta, I think. Lonesome Train on a Lonesome Track. Some live Robert Gordon featuring the great Chris Spedding. Love it. Yeah. I, I, again, I just can't get over how many records this guy's been on. Yep. I don't know how he's done it. Fantastic. Where does he live? He is in the UK. Yeah. I think he mentioned that earlier. Yep, I yeah, think so. yeah. I believe. That's fantastic. Yep, Very yep. cool. They come around here quite a bit. And I'm hoping uh, Robert Gordon and him. Yeah. I know they've been... Uh, been in Connecticut a few times. Yep. And uh, I absolutely love the Robert Gorn album he did with Danny Gatton, The Humbler. The Humbler's the bootleg, great. Oh. Yeah, from that. It's like a Washington, D.C. club. Let me tell you, there's something in the water in that area because Danny Gatton, Roy Buchanan, Nils Lofgren, they all came from the same D.C., uh, Maryland, Del- Delaware area. And it's like, wow. Like, what are the chances? And they're all kind of the same age. They were the same age as, you know, and, uh, and three of my favorite guitar players, Danny Gatton, Roy Buchanan, and, and Nils Lofgren, you know, all from the same area of the country. Just crazy. Must be the inspiration with some of the bands that they've seen live. Oh, forget it, right? Yeah, must be. Because there's, there's certain pockets like Seattle, um, even Providence. I mean, we sure. can't sell ourselves short at all. Yeah, yeah. And we've seen some great shows. And uh, what some of your memorable ones that you've seen over the years? Oh, boy. Um, my first big arena rock concert was The Police on their synchronicity tour. I was six, 15, actually. I hadn't even turned 16. I was a sophomore in high school. Yeah. And it was at the then called Providence Civic Center. That was absolutely incredible. Um, I saw Frank Sinatra at the Providence Civic Center. And a few years later, when I was a junior at Berkeley, I saw him in the round. And That had to be one of his last tours, right? No, he still had about eight or nine years of touring. Really? Um, so he was still really on the ball. He wasn't oh. forgetting. He was right on the money. That was incredible. Uh, when I lived in Los Angeles, I saw Eric Clapton and Elton John at Dodger Stadium. They had done a single together called Runaway Train, and this is when I was working for Barbara Streisand. So the sound company, Shoko, they were hearing rumors that Barbara was going to tour. So they threw all of us at the studio, comp tickets, like third row, full VIP backstage pass. Like I'm 24 and I'm backstage at Dodger Stadium. I'm like, George Michael is over there. And, you know, I was like to see Steve Lukather, like every guitar player in LA was there to see Clapton. I, I remember seeing like David Lynch and Isabella Rosalini. They just started dating. It was like this crazy scene. Wow. And then the concert was amazing. And, uh, you know, a lot of the great shows that I've seen are were kind of off the beaten path 
smaller like cult bands some too uh, like nrbq i've seen them many times a few times with big al anderson they were amazing um i love the beat farmers i saw the beat farmers twice uh, once in boston at, at night stage in cambridge and uh at the met you know i always thought the beat farmers were kind of like a west coast version of nrbq like kind of a cult band great musicians but also funny and goofy with a sense of humor um i saw the cramps at the hollywood palladium that was incredible um, what was the I'm worst show you ever saw? Where you walked away oh, disappointed? Uh, I don't. I can't really recall because I could always find something out of a show that that I would like, even if I didn't like the artist or you know I, yeah. I would like. Hey, the bass player is great, or the sound on the drums is great. But I, I've seen such a variety of show. I mean, I've seen Shakira, I've seen Mariah Carey, and then I saw Motorhead at at Lupo's. I see, I've seen Iggy Pop. You know, I've seen so many shows, and I, I enjoy them as long as you know. The very first concert I ever actually saw was a, I was in sixth grade. It was a country music festival at a racetrack in Queens, New York called Aqueduct. It was a horse racing track. And the, um, the headliners were the Bellamy Brothers and Donna Fargo. So that was the first concert I ever saw in my life was a, co- a country show That's at a ra- racetrack in Queens, New York. Wow. <laughs> what a mismatch. I would say that the police and, and Sinatra are, you know, right up there. But I saw Whitney Houston. Um, I saw I saw the New Kids on the Block reunion tour in the mid two thousands with then completely unknown opening act Lady Gaga. She didn't even have a band. She had about like four feet of of stage space uh, with backing tracks and three dancers, and she destroyed the place. Really, she just like owned it. Was it Nobody, the same same sort of vibe that she she had? Yeah, 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 yeah. And it was like the early like weird dance stuff, you know. And yeah. and she just killed it. And and she was still like a cult club. Very smart of them, those guys, to to bring her on tour. And then, you know, two years later, she was giant. So, Well, you know, uh, Eric, my rule, as soon as Lady Gaga is brought up, we have to end the show. Okay. So, and, and also, you've got to get back to your prison cell. They only let you out yes, a couple yes, hours yes. a day. But those are those are some of my, my favorite conscious. But I, I enjoyed the, the smaller, off-the-beaten-path ones as much as the big arena shows. Um, I saw The Firm. I saw the firm when I was in high school. I saw. Does this Joe guy Walsh. not get that I want to end the show? Oh my And then when God. I was in third grade, I had a dog named Biscuit, but I was allergic to it. And my parents were like, "We gotta get rid of Biscuit." I miss you, Biscuit. This show goes out to Biscuit. <laughs> it's only rock and roll podcast is available wherever podcasts are procured. That's the I love point. it. And because we're gonna end on one of your own compositions, why don't you uh, call it out? This is a little thing called. Wonderland Blues, and it is off my third record called Studies in R&B, and this was recorded at Sound Station 7, and I hope you all enjoy it, and thank you very much for having me on again. I really appreciate it, my friend. Thank you, Eric. Play the record, okay? Please.